think there's a lot to be gained from Romans, a lot of challenging passages, but a lot of very important content for understanding the gospel more deeply. I believe that we suffer from not studying deeply enough into what the gospel is all about. We tend to like lessons that talk about practical Christian living. You know, how to have a good family, how to have a nice day, how to live at work, and things like that. We need practical lessons. We also need lessons that delve into more deeply what God was doing in Christ, and what that means, and how that functions. And so that's a part of what our goal is in these studies, is to really go farther into that, and understand that more. And so I'm excited about being able to do that in Romans. Um, we got a lot to cover. And so I want you to make brief comments. And if you're somebody who doesn't comment very much, make more. If you're somebody who does comment a lot, make less. Let's try to just divide that up a little bit more. Uh, there will be some controversial questions and things. I'm, well, I, I welcome alternate viewpoints, and we'll extend those discussions into, for a little bit. I want you to be able to see both sides of a question, but we'll not try to settle every question that may come up. I don't think that'll be so true here at the beginning, but I think there will be some later on. So, Romans is the longest letter Paul wrote that we have, and it has the longest prologue, this, this introductory section of any of the letters, so much longer than typical letters in the first century. If you want to look at a typical first century letter, you might go back to like Acts 15, or Acts 23, to some of those letters that were embedded in the book of Acts, or James. Typically, letter introductions weren't very long, but under Paul, they were, and they seemed to grow. They could, uh, you know, they could cover a lot in this, this prologue to the letter. And so, we'll look at that first. Um, chapter 1, when somebody read 1 to 7. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Him, we have received grace, apostleship for obedience, and the faith of all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you can turn to the first slide, Jack. And so you've got basically the idea of the structure of this. Paul describes himself, he talks about his message, the specific task he has, and he gives basically the greetings. So Paul describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus, he's subordinate to him, he's completely at Jesus' disposal, that's the idea. He writes as an apostle, not as a private individual, but as a called apostle. So that means God has chosen him to be his representative and to write authoritative statements about the gospel. This, this is not Paul's ideas. He is a messenger of God, speaking on behalf of God. He's set apart for the gospel of God. He was really set apart to preach it, to write it, and to live it. And the gospel will be the theme of this letter. That's what this letter is all about. So it's very appropriate that Paul, set apart for the gospel, is writing this. The most important thing is this gospel is of God. It comes from God. This is not human speculation. This is God's gospel. So he expands on that in verse 2. This gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This was not some new innovation. Paul didn't concoct it. But the prophets revealed the beginning statements about the gospel in their writings. And, and so this is in continuity. This just further develops and explains the message that began in the Old Testament and was revealed to the Old Testament prophets. It's about his son. And, and he says about his son that he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. On the humanity side of Jesus, on the fleshly side, Jesus was a descendant of David. 
On, he says he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus had two natures. He had a human nature and a divine nature. And so from the human standpoint, he was the descendant of David, but from the divine standpoint, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Now, him being appointed or constituted the Son of God is an interesting statement because... He said concerning his son already. Who was appointed the son? The son. The son is being used, I think, in two different ways here. He was the son of God in the sense of his relationship with God. But also, he became the Messiah. And the Messiah, the king, was considered to be God's son in his function, in his office. So God's son was appointed as his son, his Messiah, that came through the resurrection of the dead. And that was the thing that really showed powerfully Jesus' role. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, this is Paul preaching about the gospel of, of God that was promised beforehand by the prophets concerning his son, son of David according to the flesh. He was the son of God according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's specific task, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Paul is very undeserving of being an apostle. It was by God's grace that he was made one. He was to do that to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. That was Paul's role. He was to bring the Gentiles to the obedience that springs from faith. Jack, show me the next slide. Um, there's, there's some interesting statements about obedience and faith in Romans. Look at 16.26, the second to the last verse in the book. It was leading to the obedience of faith. Now, the point I want you to think about in that is that you can't read Romans and understand faith in Romans as a dead faith. James talks about a dead faith, one that's not obedient. But the faith in Romans is an obedient faith. So, that's the kind of faith we're going to be looking at as we look at faith in the book of Romans. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. And then look at 16.19. For the report of your obedience has reached you all. Was that something different? When they reported that their faith had been spread to all, their obedience had been spread to all, was that a different thing that was being said? No. They had an obedient faith. They could report it as their faith or their obedience. It was essentially the same thing. And there are just several passages that show that idea, the connection between belief and, and, and obedience, faith and obedience. In chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, uh, however, they did not all heed or obey the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report. So obedience and belief are not separate things in, in, in Romans. That's what I want us to get out of that. And so from here on out, in Romans, when we're talking about faith, we're not talking about a dead faith. We're talking about an obedient faith. A faith that commits itself to the Lord. That's the kind of faith we're talking about in Romans. I won't say that most of the time. Paul doesn't keep saying that. He defines faith that way, and then he assumes that from here on out. Now, he was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Not just for them, but for the honor and glory of the Lord, Paul was bringing people to Jesus to honor and glorify him. The glory and honor of God is the highest motive we have for preaching the gospel and bringing people to the Lord. And so that God would be glorified. And among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. So they were in the sphere of his role as preaching to the Gentiles the gospel. They were Gentiles, and so he was uh, within his sphere when he reached out to them. Now, he then uh, speaks to them, Paul, finally, verse 7, to all the beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace and peace from God and Jesus. So, that reminds you of a lot of New Testament letters, that uh, grace and peace from the Lord and from Jesus. Grace always works, because grace is the source of peace. Peace is the product of God's grace. Thoughts and comments on those first seven verses. That's just introducing the book. Yes. They are, yeah. They end up being one basic thing. Okay, so 8 to 15.
First, I thank my God for Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I have served with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as from among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and the barbarians, both to wise and to the poor. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. The bond of our Christian closeness is not limited by the Christians that we have met. Paul, for the most part, did not know these brethren. He had not met these brethren. And yet, he loved them. He was praying for them and thanking God for them. We ought to be praying even for brethren that we've never met. How much more for the brethren that we know and we see all the time. You see that so much in Paul. Such a dedication to praying and thanking God for his brethren. Their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I assume that we understand that as somewhat of an exaggeration. I suppose we aren't saying that every single person in the world had heard of their faith of the Romans. But it had been spread widely. Lots of people in lots of places knew about their faith. And so God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness that thou unceasingly I make mention of you. It's interesting, when Paul calls God to witness something that he's done, he does that when it's something that really can't be independently verified. I mean, can you really prove objectively that someone prays for you all the time. They can tell you that, but you don't have a way to know that. So he appeals to God. Surely he wouldn't call God to witness something that was false. That would be a really brazen thing for him to do. But the thing that you see in that is that he was so concerned that they really knew that he was praying for them and wanted to see them. That's the thing that's remarkable, is that he was that eager for them to know that. Uh, that he would call God as his witness. So it's important not just that we pray for each other, but there seems to be a lot of importance on letting people know that we're praying for them, that we care about them in that way. He says, how unceasingly I make mention of you. I mean, Paul is just constantly praying, even for these Roman brethren that he had not met. Uh, you know, you think about Paul. He knew so many that I think it's just a marvel that he was able to include in his prayers believers that he hadn't even met yet. Think about how many people he didn't know that he prayed for. And then he adds these brethren and others that he had not met. Uh, so that's just really remarkable. And he, But he's really wanting to come. He says, in my prayers I'm making requests if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may, may succeed in coming to you. Uh, Paul is realizing he's dependent on God's will for this, but he really wants to come, and he's been making plans and been hoping for that opportunity. And he said that last. He feels like it's been too long. He really wanted to come before now. But he, he will tell us later on some specific plans he has made, subject to the will of God, of course, that he be able to come to Rome. Why does he want to come to Rome? Look at verse 11. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. He doesn't come to get something out of them, but to give something. So he's not wanting to come because he's heard about Rome and he wants to see the sights of Rome. He's not coming to Rome because he thinks that adding Rome to his list of places preached would be a feather in his resume or something like that. He doesn't want to come to Rome so they will do something for him. He wants to come to Rome so that he can be a blessing and a help to them. That's what his concerns are. He wants to share some spiritual gift or blessing with these brethren. So that they can be established. He's concerned with their spiritual strength and establishment. 
But look at verse 12. He said that in verse 11. Verse 12 almost implies that he felt like he maybe had not said this quite right. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't mean by that to imply that I think I can help you guys, but I don't need anything from you. This is going to be mutual. I want to bless you, and you will be blessing me. Paul doesn't want to think them to think that he thought the benefit would only be on one side. He thinks that they will be benefited, uh, but he also thinks he will be greatly benefited by being uh, being with them. There's no air of superiority in Paul. Paul believes that other Christian brethren have a way of helping and blessing him as well, which is certainly true. And if Paul thought that, how much more we ought to think that? If there was any brother, you would think, man, he didn't ever need anybody. It would have been Paul. Well, he did, and he expresses that here. He almost heaps up phrases. You know, uh, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he wants them to understand. He wanted to bless them, yes, but he knew he needed their blessing as well. And so that's, we need to do that for each other, a mutual encouragement, a mutual strengthening. No brother ought to think, I can't do anything for another Christian. We can all pray for, encourage, and help one another in various ways. So Paul comes back in verse 13 to say, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. So he had evidently made concrete plans to come there that did not materialize. Our plans can be frustrated by God sometimes, Acts 16, by Satan sometimes, 1 Thessalonians 2. In this case, I wonder if it's just Paul had too much to do trying to strengthen the brethren where he'd been. He hadn't really had time yet to come to Rome. I don't know. But he wants to be able to come and obtain some food among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wants to uh, help this Gentile church as they had been helping the others. He said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul feels the obligation to preach the gospel to everybody, no matter what who they were or what their situation was. The, the, the need to proclaim Christ transcends racial boundaries, cultural boundaries, educational boundaries. God, we stand together before the Lord. We're, we're all on the same uh, level at the foot of the cross. All of us need the gospel, and Paul wanted to preach the gospel to all. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul is eager to spread the good news, even there in Rome. And that's why he was so eager to be able to come to them. Thoughts and comments to verse 15. Yes. It shows how much we need each other. We do. To be a Christian on his own, I would say that United we stand divided and we fall. We do need each other. Other thoughts? Well, go ahead, Micah. Did you have any uh, thoughts regarding verse 11 where it talks about some spiritual gift imparting this? I think you wanted to be able to bless them spiritually. Okay. Because this is a mutual thing. So uh, whatever spiritual gift he gives, he wants to be able to receive from them. So I think he's just saying he wants to bless them spiritually. Yes. Uh -huh. I don't know how many of you saw the movie The Sanctity of God. Well, this man anonymously goes and where was this? <coughs> when he went to China, they thought they were the only Christians in the world. Huh. And when he told them there were others, they said they were going to get up an hour earlier every morning and pray for all the other Christians in the world. Huh. Well, that would be what you would imagine Paul doing, isn't it? Yeah, the right attitude, the right idea. To, as we learn about more brethren, if we were Paul, wouldn't that just add to our list of people to pray for? And I think, for me, certainly, I've not prayed nearly as much for nearly as many people as what Paul had and what I should. Yes? In studying before, I, I read... <laughs> A speculation that 
there was uh, there were rumors being spread about Paul in that he was not uh, courageous enough to come to Rome, and that um, and there were you know he's he's basically he's, he's putting that to rest. He's saying he he does want to come there. He has planned to go there. He does want to be encouraged by them. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, and that he, you know, he's basically putting this to bed. I don't, I don't know what you're... I have no idea. I mean, that would make sense, but I don't know if there's any uh, validity to that or not. But if, if they were saying he didn't want to come, he didn't have courage to come, certainly he's making it clear he had every desire to come and had even planned to already. Well, the next two verses are really the key verses in the book. They're challenging, but they really define what Paul's going to talk about. So would somebody read 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, here's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, you could take all the Roman armies and put them together, and there wouldn't be enough power in that to save a single soul. Whereas in the gospel, there is the power to save all those who believe. The supreme, almighty, saving power of God. For that reason, Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. Now, you might ask the question, why would you even think you might be ashamed of the gospel? Well, think about what Paul had suffered for the gospel. He was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Berea. He was laughed at in Athens. He preached in Corinth a message of the foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, etc. So, you can see why Sometimes it's tempting to be ashamed of the gospel. Are we ever? Are there times when we want to play down our connection with Christ and we're not so eager to talk about our faith in the Lord? It's easy to be ashamed of the gospel until you really stop and think about the gospel is God's incredible power to save men, to save those who believe. Now that's an amazing thing, that God's willing to save believers. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we continue. He says, for in it, oh, he says to the Jew first and also the Greek, our condition before God is the same, whether we're Jew or Gentile. We're in need of salvation. And so, really, the Jew and the Gentile were put on the same level by the gospel. The Jew had a priority in the historical process. The gospel first went to Jews and then the Gentiles. But their, their need was the same. And uh, their situation was the same before God. He says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, when it says it was revealed, that's saying we didn't discover that. It's not something we figured out, we investigated, we, we philosophized about. God revealed something we would never have known otherwise. And that revelation was about the righteousness of God. Now, that phrase, righteousness of God, is wow. That's a debated phrase, a challenging phrase. It's used eight times here in Romans. It's also used in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. You might look over to that verse a minute. Philippians 3 and verse 9. Because I think this helps us understand how it's used in Romans. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's two different kinds of righteousness, says, in this passage. My own righteousness, which would be, I am good enough to save myself. And God's righteousness, which would be, God makes me right with him. God makes me innocent on the basis of faith. Am I going to trust my own making myself right? Why am I going to God, let God make me right in the gospel? Well, the only one that works is God's. Mine is useless because I am not right before God. You might look at it this way. God wants to declare me innocent. But I am guilty. On the basis of my own works, my own merit, I am guilty. But... God, in the gospel, provides a way 
for guilty sinners to be considered innocent, to be considered righteous. We'll see that as this goes on. It, he will explain what is the process? How is it that God makes guilty people right? How is it that he makes them innocent before him? And that's an amazing thing. For God to be able to declare me righteous on the basis of my faith. Wow, I want to know how that can happen. And he says it's from faith to faith. I think the point probably is just stressing faith. This is all by faith. This is a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. As opposed to merit. Look at it this way. Let's suppose that I killed somebody. Innocent person, cold blood, no justification. I killed somebody. Now, if I go in, in a court of law and justice is done, what will they call me? What will the verdict be? Guilty. Now, what would what process would it take for me to be declared innocent? Well, I would have had to not kill the guy to be declared innocent, right? Once I kill him, the justice says I'm guilty. So if we never ever did wrong, if we never done anything wrong, then we could be, kept, be declared innocent ourselves on the basis of our own record. But once we've messed up, once we become a criminal before God, how can we be declared innocent? Under normal circumstances, that just can't happen. You know, now maybe you'd say, what, what about this? Okay, so I know I killed that person, but I have done all kinds of good deeds. I've given a lot of money to charity. I've helped little old ladies across the street and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, what, would, what would the courtroom say if I alleged all these good deeds? Does that make me innocent now? No, it has nothing to do with it. You can't make up for killing somebody by doing some good deeds. You're still guilty. And so we are guilty before God because of our sins. Even though we've done some good deeds. Except for this righteousness of God that he's revealed in the gospel. And that's what Paul's going to tell us about. He cites Habakkuk. The righteous man shall live by faith. This is no newfangled fantasy. This is what even Habakkuk was teaching back in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. So, comments or questions on that kind of thesis statement for the book of Romans? Yes, John. Is there, is there something in the phrasing of is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith? The fact that God always used human agents to share the gospel, that it's from the faithful to others, making others faithful, or is that is that not really the direction? I don't think he's saying that it's revealed from faithful people, but maybe that's a possibility. Um, it's almost like saying in uh, the latter part of this, the one who's righteous by faith shall live. It's from faith that comes our righteousness. And that produces faith. I think that's better than saying it's revealed by faith. I think the whole point is, faith is the condition for us to be right before God. I really think that's the point. However we understand that, from faith to faith, I think in the context what he wants to emphasize is, this is all about faith on my part that enables God to make me righteous. Okay? My So when we say an obedient faith, we're not saying a meritorious faith. We're not saying that I obey perfectly and therefore I'm right. We're saying that I have a faith that actually acts. A faith that is willing to commit itself to God and seeks to obey Him. Seeks to do what He said. But not perfect obedience. That it's not a meritorious thing. The faith will end up being the condition. It's a committed faith. The condition for God to save us. Yeah, Scott. This wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so we could become the righteousness of God. 
that's the point of all we're going to talk about. Yeah, and we will come to that very strongly here in Romans. So, we're just, we're, we're stating the theme, but we've not come to the point of really explaining the details of that theme. So, here's what you're going to do, you want to do the next one, sir. So, we've had the introduction, we've had the theme. The next thing he does is to show the need for the gospel. Then, he really packs a lot into that last section, chapter 3, that shows how the gospel works. And then, there'll be a section on, on the faith that, that is required for the, to follow the gospel. Then the blessings of the gospel. Then there'll be an objection, and then there'll be another objection a little later on. I'll show you the rest of that slide in a minute. But, but that, I think, is the overall point. So we're to the point of saying, all right, the, God, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but why do we need that? Why is that so important for us when he's going to show the bad news? If I said, I have found the cure for cancer, would you take the cure for cancer right now? Yes. Do you have cancer? No. <laughs> yeah. Take it anyway. Yeah. You know, typically, we take something when we need it. If you don't know you've got cancer, why would you take the cure? That cure for a lot of things, I would tell you. Because I don't have it. So, why would you take the cure for sin if you're not a sinner and you're not you're not lost before God? He shows the need so that people will take advantage of the gospel. So let's let's read a little bit here. Uh, verse 18 to uh, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood though through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their spectators speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and corporate animals, and crawling creatures. Okay, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God has wrath against sin. I don't know that that says God is you know, some raving, angry person. But God has a character that cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be okay with that. He's not complacent about that. Sin demands punishment. God's wrath is a part of that. So God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why God provided the gospel. Because everybody was under the wrath of God. He's showing the need for the gospel. Now, we don't like that aspect of God's character. We have a hard time with this idea God is a God of wrath. We like to hear about him being a God of love, but not a God of wrath. But we can't be fair with the Bible revelation without understanding God is severe and gracious. He has both parts to his character. We need to understand the complete version of God. God is a God of wrath. And, and so the, the righteousness of God is revealed in verse 17 because the wrath of God is revealed in verse 18. It's revealed from heaven. God reveals his wrath to us against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Every ungodly, unrighteous thing uh, is, is against God and uh, provokes his wrath. There are no exceptions. There's nothing that God's going to overlook. It's true for every person. Um, so, think about this. What about if the gospel is not preached to somebody? If he never finds out about the gospel? What's his condition before God? What's everybody's condition before God? Lost. Lost, sinner. Guilty. So, if somebody didn't hear the gospel, they're still a guilty sinner. The gospel is the remedy. If you don't hear about the cure for cancer, you may die of cancer. 
You don't die of not getting the cure. You, you die of cancer. But if you knew about the cure, if you had the cure, you could overcome that. So everybody's under the sense of God's wrath. That's why the gospel needs to be preached so that they can find out about the cure for that. He says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. From God's standpoint, they stifle the truth. They knew better. Now, Paul's contention here is that people are not, they don't have an excuse. He says in verse uh, 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has made himself known to people in the world. He has disclosed himself. Now, that may be through several things, but the thing that he shows here is since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. What he's saying is you can tell that there's a God by looking at creation. How did he get here if it weren't for the Lord? So he's saying they are not, there's no excuse. They should have known God, they should have known about God, and they should have sought God. Uh, the witness of God in nature is clear, so clear, that there's no defense for them not seeking God. Um, but, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They knew God. He keeps insisting on this point. There is a basic knowledge and understanding of God available to all men. They knew Him, but they were out without excuse because they refused to honor Him or thank God for Him. Uh, thank, thank God. Uh, so they didn't want to glorify God, and what happened? They started a downward spiral. They became futile in their speculations. They were unable to think so rationally. When people reject God, it affects their mind, and their foolish heart was darkened, and they professing to be wise, they became fools. What you see in the world is a bunch of people who say they are wise, cultured, and sophisticated, who are really foolish because they don't know God, because they don't start with God, because they don't have allegiance to God. Um, they, they think they progressed beyond God, and what they really don't realize is they're regressing away from God. Uh, and they, they claim to be wise, but they're truly foolish. They exchange the glory of God for the glory of, of his creation. And you can see that. How many people are way more tied to things here than they are to the Lord. They're more impressed by what God made than they are with him as the maker. Thoughts and comments on this decline of man uh, and the wrath of God that's being poured out. Right, Robert. We've got to be careful not to value God's blessing over God himself. There are things in this world that, that are good in themselves. And, you know, it's easy to, you know, look at people perhaps outside of the church and think, yeah, their, their priorities aren't, aren't quite right. We're just guilty of this. We can value family, we can value friendships over, over the Lord. We can start neglecting the Lord and our study and not fully realize it. Certainly. Yes. I think it's a matter of neglect. Somewhere there's a matter of just... If you neglect something, you have to be where it's there. You have to be able to acknowledge that there is a doctrine left anyway. I kind of look at it as a world just saying, I'm going to go my own way and bring friends. We need to humble ourselves. It's more after our pride. So when I'm reading what you're telling me in the scripture, if everything God is clear, then, then, he says, okay, God, I don't want to go my own way. It's more the pride, the arrogance of that rather than people neglect and all the things that God gives us are a reflection of what we begin with. Okay. Other thoughts? Yes. Uh, in verse, uh, verse, verse 18 says, uh, by their righteousness and trust the truth. Is he talking about everyday people? Or is he talking about people like I think he's talking about mankind in general. That we know the truth more than we acknowledge. We have an opportunity to know about God through creation, but we suppress that as a whole. Not Christians, but men in the world. 
and they don't really acknowledge and glorify the God that they could know about through his creation. Maybe there are other ways God reveals himself to us also, but at least in his creation, I think he's left men without excuse. Death. In verse 21, um, indicates that the beginning of this in this downward spiral, they refuse to honor and give thanks to God. Uh, and I think it's a helpful thing for us to realize that refusal of giving thanks to God has great consequences. That, that was their one of their first steps away from God, when they didn't want to honor and thank Him. Good thought. Yes? Do you think it's that people don't like the concept of God's character having a strathful side, or is that well, maybe we don't like the fact that we have to submit to some other being and we like to be in charge. There's probably a lot of reasons. But the point he's making is we are in need of the gospel. We have all abandoned what we could know about God and gone on this downhill slide. That's mankind. You know, who is an exception to the fact that we have not honored and glorified God like we should? I Conduct is. 
And, and homosexual activity is an illustration of that. He actually starts with lesbianism, maybe because even the Romans would have been a little bit shocked by that. Uh, but, but all of those exchanging the natural use of the body for that which is unnatural is a part of God's punishment of sin. You know, God did not make us uh, to be joined to people of the same gender. Anatomically, we aren't built that way, and that's not the way God intends for us to be. So God will allow people to pervert their nature, to exchange the natural use for the unnatural, as the due penalty of their error. That, that God, the sexual perversion itself, becomes the punishment. That's so ironic, but so often that's the case in the Bible. The sin is its own punishment. This is, this is totally unnatural. It's not right. It's not appropriate. And, um, you know, that's, that's what God gives people over to as a punishment for their not acknowledging Him. Without God, really, there's no limits. People just do what they feel like. Again, they become almost animals. And then in uh, verse 28, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they rejected God. God gives them over to a rejected mind. They don't want to have God in their life. God will let them have a rejected mind to where they go into all forms of sin. This is the longest list of sins in the New Testament. He gives four general sins filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. That's just general statements about sin. Then five sins that revolve around envy and its consequences. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And then two about slander. They are gossips and slanderers. Four that focus on arrogance. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Then two kind of summary sins. Inventors of evil. <laughs> they have sort of an ingenuity about it. You know, they're not content to... Uh, abide in the natural, normal paths of evil, they invent new ways of doing wrong things. Uh, you know, they want, they want to scoop this up a little bit. And, uh, and he says, uh, then, uh, disobedient to parents. And then four negative sins. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. So these are people who are foolish, they're without understanding, they're faithless, you can't trust them. They're heartless, they have no love, and they're ruthless, they have no mercy. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, think about this. Is it worse to do the sin, or is it worse to applaud the person who is doing the sin and motivate them to do it? Well, think about this. When you're overcome with sinful desire, and you fall into sin, you kind of allow the, the desire to cloud your thinking. You're so crazed with that lust that you kind of lose track of what you're doing. But the person who is standing afar off, who's cool and collected, and who just purposely promotes you doing wrong, there's a sense in which that is even worse. Because it's less passionate. It's just a more purposeful the choice to uh, not acknowledge the Lord and to just do those wrong things. So you've got people not only giving themselves to all these sins, but you've got those who are actually encouraging people to give themselves to those sins. They want to see more wickedness in the world. Now, what's his point? We need the gospel because God's wrath is poured out against all this ungodliness and unrighteousness that exists in the world. That's his point. Now, if you're listening to this, as somebody who's reading Paul, what are you going to think? Sure glad I'm not like that. Man, those are they, the world is bad, isn't it? That's the thing we usually do when we come across passages like this. Just kind of stick our finger to, wow, they are bad. Well, Paul had an idea that's what we would do. Therefore, chapter 2. But before we go into that... Questions or comments on chapter one? Okay, I think it is just acknowledging what these people chose that they chose to uh, they chose a corruptible image of God rather than incorruptible. They chose 
the lie instead of truth. They chose uh, unnatural instead of natural. They chose a debased mind over knowledge, and that's just so sad. Uh, and we do that ourselves. Right. Yeah. God gives us free will, and we have not used it to our benefit. Well, we're later, later going to read in uh, chapter 13 about, you know, about the law being subject to those with it. And there's something we said, I cannot really, there's only so far you can go to legislate morality. You, know, you can try to make a sin illegal, you know, in human laws. Someone's heart is set on doing something, and even God lets them make that decision. And, and it's, the, it's the punishment, and part is the punishment, is allowing us to go that far into sin. It has such terrible effects on us that God punishes us by allowing us to do what we've chosen. John? Working on a college campus, that is the description of the college campus, where the philosophy of the world is teaching directly and supporting the LGBT movement and those types of things a generation ago it wasn't that explicit but now it has become explicit where the promotion is there and the persecution is rising it's, it's unbelievable the degree not only of sinful behavior but the encouragement, almost the uh, applauding of the sinful behavior. Exactly what he's saying in verse 32. Matt. I really appreciate what you were saying about which is worse, when we do something or when we encourage others to do something that's sinful. Hopefully for the Christian, when we sin, we feel bad afterwards. But once we have reached the point where we're encouraging somebody to do something that's wrong, we don't feel bad. And I don't, I think most Christians don't, who claim to be Christians, don't go around most of the time telling people to sin. But I think the media that we participate in and that we recommend to others, in some ways, we can kind of do that. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's true. That's a, that's a method of, of promoting those sinful behaviors. All right, uh, somebody want to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 